Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Kia ora, hello, and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Richard Wayne. The Breakers are the hot ticket this week. In the programme, I speak with three-time Australian Basketball League champion CJ Bruton, who looks set to add a fourth title to his resume. Bruton reveals his thoughts on his future and the outlook for the game here. Hopefully more young kids and more families uh, participate in the game of basketball. I hope that more people reach out and start enjoying the game. Team New Zealand's confirmed another tilt at the America's Cup. Our man Todd Niles speaks with Grant Dalton about that and making history with another simultaneous campaign. The All-Whites confirmed not one but two friendlies in the next international football window recently. Coach Ricky Herbert tells me there's possibly more on the way in 2011 too as the side prepares to launch another World Cup qualification campaign next year. Look, there's windows in September, October, November and hopefully we do have a little bit more activity before the balance of the year leading into, you know, the Oceana qualifiers next year because we can't be dormant. We've been bitten with that one before. And will home advantage help the All Blacks at the World Cup? Well, an American economist and professor has crunched the numbers on that and some other sports statistics. Fans yelling and screaming does help, but not so much for the players, more on the referees. And really the explanation lies in psychology. It's not a conspiracy. The referees are not trying to be biased. First up, another American who's also an Australian. C.J. Bruton's family moved to Brisbane when he was three, his father playing for the Brisbane Bullets. Bruton's played for the Boomers national side, as well as winning the Australian League three times already, twice with the Sydney Kings and once with the now-defunct Bullets. And the veteran guard's surely becoming an honorary Kiwi since his move to Auckland three years ago helped spark the breakers into two post-seasons, including this year's run to the ANBL final series. I got hold of CJ Bruton after his side went 1-0 up against the Cairns Taipans. And I began by asking him about his plans beyond the latest potential championship run. I, I know it says on the board that I'm a free agent. In reality, I'm not. And I've, I've spoken to a few players, obviously other players throughout competitions always ask that, you know, what are you doing next year? What are you doing? Are you, are you coming back? Hey, you want to come play? But overall, they know where my heart lies. And as I've agreed to the breakers that I'll be here next year and this club's a man of their word. I've played for a lot of clubs that uh, don't honour anything. This is one club that has honoured everything that they've said and obviously looked after my family to the point where I have nothing but belief and faith in, in this club. Yeah, I'll, I'll be here next year. Does the, that sort of back room, um, the, the backing from the back room, you know, does that help on the court? How much does it help on the court? It helps a lot. I think, you know, anytime you get to know, but also uh, to, to play, I think some of these guys, uh, you know, you need to know what it feels like to, to be in that last year. Uh, not always knowing that you have a safety blanket, because uh, I've seen players, you know, not strive for as much. Like I, I watched Paulie, and this is last year, the desperation. Like not that he hasn't shown that throughout his career, but not every player is in that situation where they give that effort that he's been given all year long, every day at, at practice, to be in this situation. But knowing it's your last year, you would definitely want to give it your all. And for some of these young players, I hope they take a leaf out of his book. 
you think the breakers are very well balanced with players like Paul Hinare, who's, who's on his way out and, you know, inspiring everybody and yourself who's won titles and is here to help out and, and fill a role, you know? Is it, how, how important is that for the breakers' title push? Us. Title hope is, it means a lot. Obviously, having Mick Bacona, who's won a title, Dylan Boucher, who's won a title. Uh, I told those guys, uh, you know, a few days ago that it's fascinating that you see someone like Kirk Penny, who's been here for a few years, but he hasn't won a title. I said to show that side of things, like Kirk can score and he's MVP and all, but without players like them, uh, who's won titles first before anyone else on this breaker team, it just shows the younger kids coming up that it's not all about just the scoring aspect of it or, you know, you've got to do all the little things, which these guys do day in and day out, which has got us to this point. Kirk's been a great addition coming back to, to lead us in scoring and, and do, the, do the things and, and show his leadership and his role. But before he even got back, all these boys had stepped up. So to see them grow and to see them not determine what goes on, but for Kirk to say, oh, wow, this team has really grown and been really uh, matured in a long way from just the short time that he was away in the States, to say, wow, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be back and I'll accept any role that's uh, given my way and, and let's roll with it. And here we are today. What do you feel that a Breakers title, and even in fact what you guys have done to this point, and it looks like you will win the title, what do you think that's done for the sport in New Zealand? Hopefully makes more young kids and more families uh, uh, participate in the game of basketball. It's it's a game that's indoors. It's for boys, girls, uh, young men, young ladies, wheelchair basketball. We have it for everybody, and I hope that more people uh, reach out and start enjoying the game as much as we have. And if we can touch some of those kids who eventually, uh, junior tall blacks, to just associations, to maybe represent the breakers one day, or all the women's teams, and play, play an Olympic game, and achieve a goal and a dream. As for all of us, it's, it's taken us places that we probably never would have dreamed of as little kids, but we always wanted to make it to the very highest level. And for some of these guys representing not only their country, but playing in New Zealand, their home, home background to win a title is, is just as good as it gets. And would it be special to be, you know, as has been talked about a lot, would it be special to be the first New Zealand side to win an Australian competition and a team competition? Say a senior team competition. <laughs> it, it definitely will be good, but uh, that's not the point. The, the, I think everyone makes, they harp on it a lot. They harped on it ever since I got here. Uh, no one's done it. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, our sporting code is different to every other sporting code. Uh, it's a little tougher in, in everyone's field. They all have their own little differences, but for us to be a part of that and to help chip away and let everyone know that it, uh, it can be done. But for us, for the basketball code, it's definitely special. CJ Bruton speaking at Takapuna Beach before the Breakers flew out to Cairns for Sunday's big finals game. And this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Richard Wayne. The news that Team New Zealand's a definite starter for the next America's Cup has secured it a place in sailing history. The two-times Cup winner has become the first sailing team to be running campaigns for the America's Cup and the Premier Round the World race at the same time. The team's managing director, Grant Dalton, made his name in the Round the World race, winning in New Zealand Endeavour in 1994. Our America's Cup reporter, Todd Niles, speaks with Grant Dalton about the America's Cup move, but he first asked about the nationwide tour, which sets off on Anzac Day, taking its Volvo Ocean Race boat to ports around the country. The, the metaphoric rise of New Zealand yachting can be traced back, I mean, it can trace back a long way, but it, but it really started with the Round the World Race, the Whitbread Round the World Race, and, and Blake and Ceramco, then Lion New Zealand in 95, 
myself and Fisher and Pikel versus Steinlager and Peter, then 93-94 me with New Zealand Endeavour. And the one thing we did with all those boats is we toured them around the country and we took them to the ports and we showed people on board and they wound the winches and lay in the bunks and, and pressed the buttons in the nav station. And I, and I believe that that helped connect the teams that we had then uh, with the public of New Zealand. And we want to do it again. I mean, it just seems so right. The last New Zealand entry in the Whitbread Round the World Race, now the Volvo Ocean Race, was New Zealand Endeavour. Went on to win it. If you just could take a superstitious view, it's the right thing to do because the last one won it. Honestly, I, I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I cannot wait because it, it takes me back. While that's going on on the coast and the sailing, then I'll go inland to the, the yacht clubs and um, speak in the evenings and just, just reconnect in what we do. Is it going to be a, a bit of a harder job this time, given there's been that you know, 16, 17-year break in New Zealand's own involvement in that race? Yeah, undoubtedly, because the Volvo or the Whitbread, as it was, is now gone from people's consciousness. And there's other things you know, that, have, that have happened in this country, particularly, that, that, that are more important, frankly. A lot more important. So, but unless we do it, then people can never reconnect with it. And once you've lay in the bunks and thought about being at sea in this thing and, and the sparse conditions and the, the very small cooking facility and the toilet that bounces around in the front of the boat, you can't really envisage what it might be like at sea. So the, the tour gives people that opportunity to come on board and actually wind the winches. It's, it's school holidays, for the, certainly for the first week. So it's a good opportunity. We don't have posters and there's the opportunity to come for a sale if you want to draw and all those sort of things. I just think it's going to be great. You've had a few trips out on the boat around the harbour. Do you get, is there a bit of a tingle getting back on your own teams around the world boat? Well, I'm really busy at the moment. And so I, you know, I went out sailing last Friday in about 15 to 18 knots northerly, a little bit of seaway. And oh, it wasn't good because I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm not intending to sail on this thing. And I actually thought I'd get on it and go, oh, that's the right decision. I got out, I'd been out about half an hour, and I went, oh, I'm not sure I made the right decision. Uh, I, it, it, the, there's the whole things that go around the, around the world race. It's not just the boat, it's not just being on the water. It's that whole camaraderie, you know, when you're joking and being with the guys and the pressure job that this is in terms of raising money and running a whole big team. And I certainly will do some sailing on the boat. It's not right for me to do the around the world race, even though probably physically I can still easily handle it. Because there's a team being employed to do it, and my job's to manage that and, say, the America's Cup as well. So all I'd do is be a disruptive influence. I won't be on board. Might be unfair to ask even before this race starts, but is this a one-off that was made possible by the gap in the America's Cup, or could this be the start of a new, longer-term involvement? Well, it certainly started because of the gap in the America's Cup. I think there's two things that really got it going. One, my, my heart is still in the round-the-world race, although my head's in the America's Cup. It's very easy to be passionate about the round of world race. It's not so easy to be passionate about the America's Cup. And so that was able to sort of foster from a time point of view uh, because I had a, bit, a little bit of time to think about it and then to raise the money. What I think's happened is that it, because our brand just grows and grows on a success platform, that we find that we can do other things. You can have a team of guys that aren't directly involved in the America's Cup working on this project as well. I mean, it it makes my time a bit split, but that will change as as the boat moves offshore. It's just while we're in this phase. And I think as this team, Emirates Team New Zealand, continues to grow and becomes the arrowhead of the marine industry in this country, so it should franchise itself as well. And this is a, a, a very 
big example of that, an obvious example. Quite a thing to be running those two campaigns at the same time. Yes, stre- stressful, eh? <laughs> yeah, a Volvo Ocean Race used to be a really, really big job uh, all by itself. You know what's different? The difference is people. You know, with Kevin Shoebridge and Chris Nicholson skippering the, the Volvo boat, with Stu Bannaton and Tony Ray and Adam Minoprio, and then Dean Barker and America's Cup, along with Glenn Ashby and those guys, and a great design team, you can do it. I mean, you, you need to be pretty light on your feet and dancing, but you can do it. I mean, I, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's the first team in the world ever in history that's attempted to do the two biggest yacht races in the world at the same time. Do you feel, you know, you've got the budget now to do a winning campaign, given that you're up against at least one pretty seriously funded team? Yeah, Oracle's seriously funded, and so is Artemis. We never have their firepower money-wise. Never have, never will. They probably spend as much on PR and marketing as we spend on an entire campaign. But history says that we're always good enough, just with the way we do it and the Kiwi way. So I believe that we've got enough firepower to get to the end. Uh, I need to get a bit more money. But, but this is a stage we had to make. And if nothing changed from now, we'd be seriously... Um, tough team to beat. I just want to make us a bit tougher. How many teams are there going to be in that sort of league that, that your team is in, do you think? Oh, not many. These are tricky boats, these new uh, these new cup boats. And certainly the big boat will be seriously tricky. Just the sheer logistics of these new boats will scare a lot of teams clean away. But that's an advantage to us, not a disadvantage. As Kiwis, we're, that's kind of plays to our strength. Make it as hard as you can. Make it as tricky as you can. Make the boats as difficult as you can to sail in breeze because in San Francisco it's going to blow. And thanks very much, that's just perfect for Kiwis. Grant Dalton says the camper round the world boat visits Tauranga on April the 26th, Gisborne on the 29th, Wellington May the 2nd, Dunedin the 5th of May and Littleton on the 7th and 8th of May. Still to come on Extra Time, we analyse the psychology behind home advantage, where the momentum really exists and how much luck has to do with who wins a tight game. I spoke with the All-Whites coach Ricky Herbert this week as the national men's football side announced a second international against Australia in Adelaide in FIFA's June window. The Socceroos game kicks off just three days after New Zealand tackles Mexico in Denver, so it's a long haul, but it's one the coach welcomes as he looks to the future. Three players debuted in the China Friendly in March, and more would have perhaps won their first cap if the Japan game hadn't been called off due to the disasters there. And there may be more debuts on the way and more travel coming up later in the year, with extra games possibly in the pipeline. Ricky Herbert, great news to seal in our second uh, international in June and against Australia, the arch-rivals. You must be pretty pleased with this. Yeah, look, I think any any chance to, to play the, the trans... Tasman sort of rivals is really good, and um, albeit the travel and everything, we know it's tough. You know, we've considered that, but I think weighing up an opportunity to play a, another international of that stature is uh, is important for us. The travel is obviously a big thing, but it, we, I mean, we must be being where we are in New Zealand here that we must have one of the biggest travel you know, obstacles of anybody. A lot of other countries play a couple of friendlies in these windows, and they just trot across the strait or something. We have to go around the world, so it's just how it goes, isn't it? Yeah, and we've had years of doing that, and that's never going to change. You know, the the important thing now is we've got an opportunity to to bring some new players along as well, and you know, for them to experience the discomfort sometimes of of having to do this, um, I think will stand them in good stead in, in, in the long 
in the long haul. But um, you know, more importantly, the level of, of competition here is very, very good with uh, two strong, you know, sort of recent World Cup teams. Mexico and Australia, two very strong sides. I expect they'll be putting out strong sides against you, and combined with the travel factor you mentioned before, the results might not go our way. What would, what would be good results from these two friendlies in June? Who knows what we could do in these two games, you know? I mean, it's, a, it's always an interesting you know, toss of the coin when we play. But, uh, yeah, I mean, at the forefront of this is, is getting them out, giving them more exposure, giving them more time. There's a travel component to get it uh, as part of that. Uh, there'll be a little bit of time on the pitch with training, not a lot, but I think just a, it's a meaningful World Cup programme. And I think that's, uh, gee, surely that's what the game wants, isn't it? You'll have to have a, a bigger squad like you originally planned for China, I imagine, and, and like you say, you'll be able to get some youngsters in. So great to be able to mix a match, take a bigger squad and, and blood some, some youngsters with some more game time. Yeah, absolutely. I think both those are, uh, are spot on. You know, we'll, We named a, an extended squad of 30 prior to the, uh, the Chinese and proposed Japan tour. So we will delve into that group. At this stage, we'll take 22. And look, some will play in both. Some may play in one. Some may play a, a part in both. It's great to see the youngsters coming through. And, and, and with the extra games, I guess you know they'll be able to get a bit more game time. Yeah, correct. And I think um, you know if we'd have gone off the back to the to the Japanese game, then I think uh, you, you probably would have seen a lot more of them in the Chinese game. But uh, yeah, no, look, it's there. And I think um, exposure at this level is really crucial. Those young players will thrive on that. I think what you do get from them is uh, is a non-fair approach. You know, we we encourage that, and the more we can put them out against this, you know, this level of opposition, you know, the better chance we have depth-wise going into a World Cup qualifying series. So, um, I think they'll relish the chance. The results might be tricky and difficult for us, but um, you know, I think when you put that in context of hopefully having another successful World Cup campaign, then. Um, and I think the right th- the right thing to do is uh, is give these guys a go. Like you said, these youngsters don't seem to have any fear, and they also seem to be bringing more ball playing dimensions, perhaps than we've had in the past. Which is where obviously the All Whites need to be going if we're going to challenge and keep pushing. You know, some of these young boys have it. I mean, they're, they're very inexperienced internationally, and you know, if we can add to that and and, and support them in that arena, then um, who knows what sort of side we could have in four years' time. Winston Reid is one, for instance. Michael Boxall looks like he's you know, got a lot going forward as well. So it's great to see those boys coming through. Have you seen much of this guy, Dan Keat, who's just started playing with the LA Galaxy? Now he's fit again. Yeah, look, I know um, Dan extremely well. I mean, he's played a lot of football in New Zealand as well. And you know, I think a good thing about what, what players are doing now is you know, somebody like Dan, who appears on, on, the, on the roster and, and starts to get game time, and, and, and like you say, coming off injuries, etc., then the shop window's open, and I think you know, as a player, as he is, and, and the level that he's playing at, when he sees a Michael Boxall and sees a Michael Fitzgerald, sees a Marco Rojas, sees a Costa Barbarossa, that he, in the back of his mind, knows that there's a management group that's always looking, and uh, and we certainly are. Do you think in the past you might have been a little slow to promote youth, like um, obviously more at club level perhaps, but um, are you leaning more towards, as the likes of Ryan Nelson is you know, slowly being phased out, let's face it, he's near the end of his career, that you have to depend more on these youngsters, so are you looking more to do that? Um, yeah, look, I think we had a very young side when we went into the World Cup campaign. I mean, I had 14 under 23-year-olds um, in my first game in, uh, at Craven Cottage, so I think we've been very instrumental in, in the youth. The group of players that we're coming through now have been past entities of younger national coaches that uh, probably haven't had the same encouragement in, in, in putting them into teams. But, uh, you know, we've got another seven, I suppose, that are close to under 21 that are part of what we're doing at the moment. So 
I'd kind of think we're pretty aggressive in, in allowing opportunities for young players. And, and for me, it's not about age. A young player who's good enough is, is going to get an opportunity. Well, it's great to see the All Whites playing at least twice this year and, and possibly more, where perhaps there's only going to be these World Cup qualifiers, which have been delayed. Can you speak to, about September and what we're hoping to get, maybe some more fixtures in September perhaps as well? Yeah, look, there's windows in September, October, November. You know, I think budgetary-wise and financially, you know, that you know, we we still need to tick all those boxes, and we'll keep searching and looking for opportunities that kind of meet that budget. And hopefully, we do have a little bit more activity before the balance of the year leading into, uh, you know, the Oceania qualifiers next year, because we can't be dormant. You know, we can't be waiting and with, you know, just a hundred percent expectation that we can get through Group One and you know give it a go in Group Two, because we've been bitten, you know, with that one before. All-Wides coach Ricky Herbert. The Mexico Games on June 2nd, and the Socceroos await in Adelaide three days later. Only one of those away games for the New Zealanders will have true home advantage for the opposition. But as our last guest found out, what we generally think that means is something quite different to what home advantage actually is. Tobias J. Moskovitz is a University of Chicago professor and a financial economist. He's co-written a book called Scorecasting. He talks home advantage, momentum and some other sports statistics with Nine Till Noon's Catherine Ryan. So what were some of the myths that you took on? You mentioned, um, what is it, momentum and uh, the, the hot hand. Enlighten me. Yes, actually, this is one of the more controversial findings. Um, even, even myself, I, w- I was convinced that there was momentum in sports. You hear this in almost every sport, whether it's rugby, soccer, or here in the states, you know, baseball, American football, basketball. Um, that you know, teams or players get on hot streaks and cold streaks, and that this you know subsequently predicts whether they're going to perform better or worse going forward. So you hear teams have momentum uh, going into a game or going into uh, the last few minutes of a game. A player has momentum. They're either on a hot or cold streak. And what we found is, surprisingly, in every sport that we looked at, there was no persistence in performance. So undoubtedly, teams and players go on streaks. There's no question that happens. But they have no predictive value. And the example we give is, you know, take a coin flip. Uh, If you flip a coin a hundred times, you won't get heads, tails, heads, tails in alternating fashion. You'll end up at some point with six or seven heads in a row. Now, does that mean the next flip is more or less likely to be a head or a tail? Not at all, right? It's the same probability as it always is. So I think it's it's this human beings have a tough time understanding randomness. We underappreciate the role of luck and randomness, and a lot of these streaks, it turns out, are driven mostly by luck. What about the sports psychology, though? And uh, the, the athletes themselves will talk about being in form or being in flow. They'll assess their own performance as being easy and it's all coming together or not. Is that not an element of momentum? Well, you would think it would be, but again, that would be captured by the the tests that we looked at. Because now, by the way, when you interview athletes, both, in fact, psychologists have run experiments where they've placed uh, professional and collegiate basketball players on the same spot and had them shoot from the same spot. And when they hit a number of shots in a row, they will tell you they feel better, they feel more confident, they feel the flow, just as you're describing. Or when they miss a bunch, they'll say they they feel off or they feel cold, and, and they they feel that way. But the fact of the matter is it has no predictive value. So there's no question that I think players feel better and more confident when they hit a few shots versus when they miss a few shots, but it doesn't seem to predict 
their success rate on the next couple of shots. And the experiment that I'd like to see run that nobody has run is if you re-ran the same experiment but blindfolded these players, maybe even put earplugs in so they had no idea whether they made the shot or missed the shot, my guess is they wouldn't feel any differently, even though they might be shooting it uh, in such a way that, that would be better for making the shot or missing the shot. So people certainly have that emotional element, but it doesn't seem to have any predictive value. And this is why I think most people don't don't believe that it's there, but we certainly couldn't find it when we looked at the numbers. Well, what about the argument then that some teams choke? You know, they come under pressure, they've got to get the winning goal in the last second, and for whatever reason, some teams are better at it than others. Is that real? That, that I think my, that certainly could be real. We haven't we haven't looked at that uh, effect that closely. Now that's a little different than than momentum, right? That's just when when there and and this is a a very um, debated topic, which is people here call it the you know the existence of the clutch player or the clutch team. In the clutch, when the pressure is really on, there are some players or some teams that just perform better. Now, I don't know of any uh, serious enough analysis that has looked at that very, very carefully. The one thing I would say is we always have to be conscious of the fact that it's easy to assess those stories after the fact, hard to assess them before the fact. For instance, undoubtedly, you will see differences in players and teams ex post that have done well in the clutch versus those that seem to have choked. The question is, are they, is there any persistence in that? So the teams that happened to lose close games last year, are they more likely to lose close games the next season? And I think that evidence suggests that there, that that's not true. That basically winning close games is mostly a function of luck. But I, I have to say I haven't looked at it that carefully, so I, I want to be a little cautious in my interpretation. What about the hometown advantage? Uh, we would dearly love some for our Rugby World Cup <laughs> this year. What were your findings? So we looked at the home field. The home field advantage was one thing we looked at that is absolutely no myth. So we, we looked at a lot of things in sports that uh, ended up not being supported by the data. But home field advantage is one that is unbelievably strong, unbelievably supported by the data. And we looked at this across 42 different countries in soccer. We looked at this across dozens of different sports, for instance, in rugby, uh, which is I, I know what uh, listeners are, are probably thinking about for the next couple of months leading up to the to the cup, um, you find that the home team, this is internationally, wins uh, about 58% of the time, which incidentally is almost the exact same percentage that you see in American football, which is not, not a, obviously not the same sport, but, but similar in lots of respects. And we see this uh, throughout all, all different countries and all different leagues. Now, the real uh, interesting part is what's causing that. And we looked at a bunch of different things, whether the road team has traveled, uh, whether the road team traveling is more fatigued, whether the home players are being boosted by the crowd. And none of that really seemed to matter. The primary factor we found was that the referees seem to be influenced by the home crowd. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Fans yelling and screaming does help, but not so much for the players, more on the referees. And really the explanation lies in psychology. It's not a conspiracy. The referees are not trying to be biased. They're human. They're just scared. Yeah, they're, 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 well, it's not just scared. It's also that there's two elements. One is social pressure. You're right. They're a little bit uh, under the gun and, and, and uh, feeling the pressure from the home crowd. The other thing, and I think this was uh, some, something we, we highlight in the book, is that the calls that seem to go the home team's way are the ones that are the least um, obvious, the ones that are the most uncertain. And that makes a lot of sense because 
what, what we find is that the referees are calling things where they're not sure what the right call is, but when 50,000 screaming fans say it's out and you're not sure if it's in or out, <laughs> you tend to be influenced by that information. Catherine Ryan speaking with Tobias J. Moskovitz on 9 to Noon. And interestingly, a test case for home advantage exists from the Italian Football League. A 2009 academic paper concluded that referees exhibit home bias caused by social pressure from the spectators when 25 Serie A and B matches were played in empty stadiums in the 2006-07 season. That was due to crowd trouble. Moskovitz says in those games, something like 80% of the home advantage vanished without the biased crowds baying at the officials. And that's the show for this week. Feedback's welcome via sport at radionz.co.nz, sport at radionz.co.nz. You can get the latest sports news anytime on our website. Well, we'll be back with the next web-only Extra Time show next week. I'm Richard Wayne. Have a good week. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.